and welcome to another episode of The Forum, the podcast by the Diplomacy Law and Policy Forum. Today, we are very happy to have with us Ali Sultan, who is an international law expert and who has previously been executive director of RSIL. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be with you. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about nuclear weapons and war. So could you explain to us briefly how the laws of war and its cardinal principles specifically, so distinction, proportionality and precaution, how do those apply to the use of nuclear weapons in an armed conflict? Okay, well, the first thing to understand is that there is really no comprehensive ban under international law on the use of nuclear weapons. There are partial bans on the use of nuclear weapons. So for instance, you have nuclear weapons free zones in Latin America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia. And then uh, you can't basically place weapons, nuclear weapons on the moon or in orbits around celestial bodies, yeah. uh, as well as on the bed of the oceans uh, and the topsoil and so on and so forth. And then, you know, you have the 1996 advisory opinion by the International Court of Justice. Although it is not legally binding, it still is persuasive in terms of its authority. And it's an opinion which has been criticized for being vague uh, and not really definitively addressing the question which was asked from the ICJ, which was that, is the use of nuclear weapons legal or ever justifiable under international law or yeah. not? And the court got into this analysis and in the end it said that it accepted that nuclear weapons even if they're ever used, have to be consistent with the principles of IHL, the mm. ones that you just pointed out, which is military necessity, proportionality, distinction, uh, and of course humanity, uh, in the sense that uh, IHL prohibits weapons which cause superfluous injury or unnecessary harm and suffering. And there are many weapons which have been banned because of because they violate this principle of humanity uh, mm. or humaneness, so to speak. But then the court also said that uh, despite this, we cannot definitively say uh, because of the current existing state of international law, which in a sense uh, was contradictory. So you had customary international law which would support prohibition on the use of nuclear weapons, but then you also had an opposing custom of deterrence. Mm. So the court finally yeah. said that uh, it might be true that uh, there may be a situation, an extreme situation of self-defense where the existence of a state is threatened, uh, that in that situation, uh, nuclear weapons may be used, but if they're used, they have to be used in uh, consistency with those principles. And then the court said that it's really not possible to yeah. abide by those principles, which is why, as I said, it's a, uh, there's a bit of ambiguity mm. in that opinion. So that's the state of the law as far as the use of nuclear weapons is concerned under international law. Yeah, and it's interesting that you went into the advisory opinion because there you've had a clear 50 years at that point of non-use of nuclear weapons. And yet the court, in a really confused judgment where it was very much conflating the Yusad Bellum with the Yusin in Bellum, yeah. saying generally, yes, they're going to be contrary to IHL principles, but 
if your existence as a stake as a state is at stake, perhaps you might be able to use them then. So it's a right. very confusing, garbled judgment. Um, right. And at the same time, there was a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of criticism of this in the sense that the examples even that Justice Shahabuddin gave in his separate opinion was mm -hmm. that maybe if you have a desert, in, uh, an army in a desert, maybe then you could comply with the principles. Right. Right? Or maybe on high a submarine, seas. Exactly. Yeah, a submarine, a submarine in the high far seas. away military installations, yeah, all of that. Yeah. Uh, but even then, uh, you know, there is clear evidence that because of their effects, yes. um, prolonged effects on populations. Yeah. Even if, you know, you could somehow abide by principles of necessity, proportionality, and even distinction. Yeah. Uh, you still would not be able to comply with the humaneness yeah. uh, principle uh, yeah. of IHS. And especially because they didn't really take into account the effects of radiation. Absolutely. And apparently, uh, even today in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they still have patients to come in with complications arising True. from those attacks. True. So, so that's 50, unnecessary yes, and prolonged exactly. suffering. Exactly. Superfluous, 70 years later. You know, yeah. uh, suffering. And hence, uh, you know, it would be difficult to uh, sort of justify their use under this principle. Yeah. And I think some of the some of the people who are trying to understand why the court came, came to this judgment were saying, well, um, they, you know, this would apply to current nuclear weapons and also those in the future. Mm -hmm. And you could potentially have clean strategic or tactical nuclear weapons, which would not emit radiation. Right. But we're even now we're about, what, 30 years away from that judgment. And that's still a sci-fi reality and not True. an actual real life reality. True. There is no potential currently of having clean nuclear weapons. True. And the, and the, and the other thing is that, I mean, this is one of those occasions where international politics got bundled up with yes, international yeah. law. So if you go and read the statements which were submitted by the nuclear weapon states, including the US, yeah. uh, that's what they were pushing for. They exactly, weren't pushing yeah. for prohibition uh, on the use of nuclear weapons. The US has what's called flexible deterrence, which dates back uh, since the 1960s. Robert McNamara, who was their defense secretary, mm. he came up with this doctrine that it is possible to have a limited managed use of nuclear weapons, yeah. which would abide by most of these principles, mm. at least IHL. So that's why, you know, the US has tactical weapons on its submarines yeah. and so on and so forth. Russia also incidentally has the same, uh, subscribes to the same doctrine of mm -hmm. flexible deterrence. And that today is very relevant because in the context of Ukraine, there are fears yeah. that perhaps we might face a situation where Russia may consider using tactical nuclear mm. weapons. And, so and that's an alarming, of, yeah, and that's it's an alarming upping, situation. It's upping the ante in that respect as yes, well by saying I mean, now we're going to put it on admitted, Belarus's territory yeah, yeah, absolutely, and stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, that's a concern yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. And it's something which is quite easy to be very critical of the court's judgment, which, I mean, I am when you read the judgment. It's not very well reasoned. It's not very well written. But at the same time, the concerns, as you said, are real politic. You can't yeah. enforce the court's judgment. Right. Is it going to undermine the legitimacy of the court by saying, actually, now you can't have nuclear weapons and states being like, well, we don't agree. Absolutely. Um, so I think I think maybe when you look at it in that way, it kind of worked that tightrope quite well. Absolutely. So, I mean, just 
just to mention, there was subsequently there is a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. I was just get, yeah, which yeah. actually entered into force in 2021, but none of the nuclear weapon states are a party to that treaty. Yeah. So it's it's not really uh, it it doesn't have any meaningful impact yeah. in terms of. Uh, prohibiting the use of nuclear weapons, and as you know, under the principle of consent, you can't force states to become parties to treaties. Yeah. Uh, the same problem we witness in the case of some test ban treaties, uh, for instance, the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, where uh, the nuclear weapon states are not becoming parties to it, and it hasn't been able to enter into force. So these are real politic problems. Yeah. Uh, and not just international law problems. Yeah, and the the kind of parting shot that the court gave at the end of the judgment was that well, you have Article Six of the Non Proliferation Treaty, which under good faith you have to you have this obligation to pursue disarmament, right. and that again has been criticized for being very vague, ambiguous, no actual concrete obligations under Article Six, right. and in pursuit of that, states have. Uh, negotiated this TPNW, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. But again, the criticism is that it preserves the hegemony of those who have nuclear weapons compared to those who haven't, uh, who don't have it. So do you think that's a fair criticism? And do you think that these, I guess the hope of uh, states which have ratified these treaties is that eventually they may become custom and it might be used as a tool for diplomacy? Well, you have to realize that, I mean, there is a powerful argument that the nuclear weapons also are sort of underwriters of global security order. Mm. Um, so, for instance, there is uh, this argument that the reason why the Cold War between Russia and the U.S. didn't degenerate into a hot war yeah. was because of the deterrence which was provided by the nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, and also, you have to understand that it's not just the nine nuclear weapon states uh, which benefit from the deterrent security which is provided by nuclear weapons. There are also countries, about more than two dozen countries, NATO countries, Japan, South Korea, which are under the U.S. nuclear nuclear umbrella. Mm. So they also have a specific position. So as long as you have a sizable chunk of countries or states which are not willing to part with uh, either the protection which is provided by the nuclear weapons or their possession of nuclear weapons, such customs would be hard to, yeah. to, to form. And then there obviously always is the principle of persistent objective. Yeah. Uh, while customs are being crystallized. Uh, and I think that also will play a part. Uh, as far as the Article 6 is concerned, now there was a follow-up uh, litigation before the International Court of Justice to the 1996 advisory opinion, and that is the Marshall Islands case. Yeah, yeah. Where Marshall Islands brought um, a contentious case against all the nine nuclear weapon states before the ICJ in 2014. And actually, RSI was involved in providing uh, advice uh, to the stakeholders in that matter. And there, Ma Marshall Islands was arguing that uh, these states have this positive legal obligation to negotiate in good faith uh, 
efforts towards disarmament mm. and they haven't been doing that. So the court should pass an order to that effect. But that, uh, that, that case was dismissed for lack of jurisdiction and admissibility. Yeah. Um, so that's where that mm. effort was, you know, was, was scuttled. Yeah, it is interesting to look at it where um, these states choose to do their testing and even within Pakistan where they choose to do their testing and, and the argument that why would you go and test on the Marshall Islands of all places, you right. know? Uh, right. So I think that especially when African and um, Latin American states argue against it, I, I do understand, but at the same time, when you look at Russia and Ukraine, when you look at Libya, you are like, why would a state give up its nuclear weapons when they do act so effectively, sometimes as a deterrent? Well, yes, Ukraine also gave up yeah. its sort of yeah. nuclear weapons in the 1990s. And now some commentators make the argument that if it hadn't, perhaps it yeah. would find itself in the situation that it finds itself in today. But there are incentives. Um, you know, at one point, Canada, Turkey, um, Australia, mm. they all had ambitions to be a nuclear weapon state, but, but, they, ch but they chose not to pursue that, uh, that, uh, that pathway. Mm. Uh, because no matter what, we're dealing with a technology which has absolutely catastrophic uh, sort of potentially catastrophic yeah. impact. So even if there is a minuscule risk of an accident uh, or something going wrong, um, you know, in the safety and welfare of the citizenry, perhaps these states would not want to take that risk. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it, it makes sense even now when you read the stories from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I remember reading a telegram sent by someone from the ICRC who was reporting back immediately in the aftermath, being like, people around me writhing like worms, like you can't see that what's happening to them, but, it, it, but it's horrendous. Um, so going forward, what do you think in terms of nuclear disarmament then? What are the best options? Like we, we've talked a little bit about dip, diplomatic efforts, but I worry that again, that will be used as a cudgel against, and we've seen that being used so strongly against Iran um, and the way Iran has continued to quite vehemently <laughs> pursue its nuclear weapons program right. despite attacks like Stuxnet and other attacks on its nuclear reactors. Right. And well, then you had the, um, the agreement between the US and, and Iran. The JCPOA, so, right? Exactly, yeah. Absolutely. I think, unfortunately, the conversation will continue between the nuclear weapon states on how best to go about arms production uh, and perhaps even full disarmament. But I don't see a way out of this in terms of this impasse. So you'll have conversations going on at the Conference of Disarmament in Geneva, mm. which meets twice a year. Yeah. And the first committee of the UN from time to time, of the UN General Assembly from time to time, would keep on you know, working in this regard. But the position of countries, including Pakistan, is that unless there can be non-discriminatory and verifiable disarmament, mm. which does not diminish the security of the states which are giving up those nuclear yeah. weapons, now this is very difficult to achieve because uh, many of these, many of the nuclear weapon states would no longer remain as powerful as they are with nuclear weapons. 
So it would inevitably lead to some kind of a reduction in their security. Mm. So these are real problems. But when I look at the 1970s, for instance, the height of the Cold War between Russia and the US. And remember, they had been very close to a catastrophic nuclear mm. conflagration in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. So they learned that lesson. And in 1970s, there were efforts to strategically limit and reduce um, yeah. uh, you know, nuclear weapons yeah. between the US and uh, Russia. And in that regard, they concluded what are known as the SALT right. and the START agreements. Yeah. And at some point also the INF agreement, which the Trump administration pulled out of. Mm -hmm. So the US's nuclear posture uh, and strategy is also changing as we speak. So those are positive uh, developments. I mean, if you look at them historically, uh, and they contributed greatly towards the data between you know, USSR and the US at the time. So maybe something like that can come about uh, again in yeah. the context of perhaps US and China. Yeah. Which which would definitely which would definitely be a positive step mm. for global peace and security. Yeah, especially when you see the role that China is taking for itself in in the global community, especially when it comes to the Iran-Saudi deal, for right. example, it, it has a lot more leverage now than it did before. True. So, True. so that could happen. True. Um, I think that's a good note to end it on. Thank you so much for joining us here Pleasure. today. And thank you for everyone for watching at home. Thanks.